Have you ever made the observation that Raw, SmackDown, and NXT pretty much look the same? Were you disappointed that AEW didn't quite revolutionize an entire new way of wrestling presentation? And have you ever explored why that might be? Beyond the business boundaries of analyzing the companies themselves, beyond the limitations of comparing their clearly very talented rosters with one another, what if, instead, we looked to the cultural era that we belong to, or more so, the one we're starting to belong to? We're currently at a clear evolution in our culture, and we're starting to see it unfold and reveal itself in our world. One that's simultaneously insignificant and yet the most important thing on this damn planet, the world of professional wrestling. But to understand this new culture, we must first look back to the other cultural eras we have lived through, as both individuals and as a collective society, to analyze where we've been in order to understand where we might be going. As futures are only ever made by a consideration of the present through an understanding of the past. Hello, dear listeners. Thank you so much for hitting play on yet another audio essay about wrestling. It's not gossip, it's not reviews, it's not a weekly roundup of what's happened in the sport we love. Just around an hour of carefully crafted discourse that you can ambiently listen to or entirely engage with and pull your own meaning from. This space is mine, but it's also yours. Welcome. Thank you to those who listened to the first two essays and offered feedback, positive, negative, everything in between, it was terrific. If you haven't listened to those essays, I reckon you're safe to listen to today's without the context of the first two. But please, once this is done, why not give them a try? It could be they have a flavour that's more appropriate for what you're thinking about at the moment. Or perhaps they'll just be another couple of hours of sound to help drown out the pressures of modern existence. Either way, I'm happy. This is a tool. Use it. As always, I am not an expert on any of the things I will be discussing in this podcast. I'm a diehard Mark. I'm intensely passionate about the world of professional wrestling, but not involved in it in any way. It's simply a media analysis of the medium from the perspective of an audience member. And speaking of media, I'm not a media expert either. Like, I have a now kind of old degree and a intense interest in the landscape and fabric of media, culture, and society. But my word is far from gospel. Everything I'll discuss in this episode, I've pretty much learned about in the last few weeks. That's the... That's the one positive of the information age. You can you can go out and learn a new thing. But if I do say something that you disagree with, that is fundamentally wrong, that needs reappraising, reanalyzing, please do get in touch. I love being corrected. Being wrong is room for growth. And you can do that on Twitter at MattWWriter, or you can write to me in the traditional long form. Traditional 90s long form by sending an email to wrestlingismedia at gmail.com. 
Before we get on with today's essay, a special thank you to those who have told me that you shared one of the previous two essays with a fellow wrestling fan or someone who might be interested in it. Either, either way, thank, thank you so much for sharing. Anyway, that's that's the admin out of the way. I had a lot of fun writing this episode. Maybe, maybe the most fun I've had out of the three. So hopefully you can get something from this. Time for our discourse of the month. Is pro wrestling meta-modern? Before we get to the meta-modern, we must first define the cultural eras that came before it. It's only polite. Now there's no chance, no chance in hell, I'll be able to fully articulate and define both modernism and postmodernism within this episode. Very, very clever people teach entire semesters on just one of these concepts. So in the next five minutes, I'm going to give an extremely brief overview, which is highly disrespectful to academia, but also we want to get to the wrestling. So please do read more about these movements and modes of thinking that each span philosophy, art, media, sociology, and, and so much more. They're like trying to define the concept of blue. You can explain it rather simply by saying it's a primary colour akin to the sea or sky, but to go into the details of what blue means in various cultures, the different tones and shades of blue, and the theories behind the idea of blue, well, it would, it would take a long time, and Eiffel 65 have already reached the limits of that particular discourse. So here we go, time for a very brief history lesson. After the period known as the Enlightenment began to stagnate towards the end of the 19th century and creeping industrialization set in, philosophers, artists, and other social leaders set about to examine the effects of industrialization on society. In order to find out why there was this general feeling of society being held back, Great technological advancements had been made during the period of industrialization, yet some scientific discoveries such as quantum physics undermined concepts of the enlightenment such as certainty and determinism. Meanwhile, in the world of art, because that's where everything begins, realism in its many forms was being rejected in favor of more abstract works with a specific focus on individual expression. Think of it as moving from artists such as Manet to Van Gogh, that's how you pronounce it, look it up. Both artists primarily captured landscapes, but Manet tried to capture the realism of the scene, whereas Van Gogh brought an abstract approach with his own expression of what the imagined scene could be. When modernism fully took hold is up for debate, but many theorists consider the period to span from the late 19th century to the 1970s. In modernist movements, the artist and each individual work of art, music, or architecture was considered to be uniquely individual to the artist, that any meaning could be derived entirely from observing the piece. Art movements like Dadaism or Surrealism capture the spirit of modernism and the changes it brought about. 
if the Age of Enlightenment was supposed to bring about certainty and determinism, then how did it produce something as cruel as colonialism, and why did its death throes amount to the bloody horrors of the First World War, a lived contradiction of the Enlightenment of man? And both Dadaism and Surrealism both highlighted the ridiculousness of the so-called enlightened power structures by removing any sense of objective realism from art. As how can something so enlightened produce something so senselessly violent? The only response is nonsense. Modernism was surely cemented and in full swing by the interwar period. Some theorists say it lasted until the Second World War, others until the end of the Cold War. We're dealing with a combination of art, culture, and of course, pro wrestling. We're going to land on the side of modernism lasting until the late 70s, kind of early 80s kind of time. That, you know, that general, you know the time. Punk was happening, yet conservatism was setting in. You, you, you remember it. I mean, you weren't, you probably weren't alive. I wasn't, but you, you remember the version of it that's told to us at least. Although I do concede that from 1945 to 1980, artists and thinkers were actively searching for a new way, for what would eventually be called postmodernism, in the same way they did at the tail end of the Age of Enlightenment when searching for modernism. In the 1980s, with the rise of home media technologies, Reaganomics, and the dying light of a Cold War, Theorists built on the foundations of modernism, as they found a disconnect between artists and individuals in the traditional modernist sense. In short, this was due to a free access to many media and cultural products like never before, and a rise in predatory individualism by toxic capitalists. Individuals began to attach their own meaning to the work produced by artists. Where anything could be whatever you wanted it to be, providing you were the loudest voice in the room and willing to exploit others in search of your own meaning. If modernism opposed the concept of realism, then postmodernism opposed collective reality itself. Now, postmodernism is likely the time you grew up in, so it's going to sound awfully familiar. Postmodernism is characterized by irony, parody, and nihilism. Postmodernists continued the path of finding meaning in art over things like certainty, but crucially, they rejected the leftover idealism that was still prevalent within modernism. Grand narratives such as unity and progress were pushed aside under the assumption that concepts like unity are impossible to achieve. Therefore, they concluded, if world progress through grand movements is fundamentally impossible, then a focus should be placed on individual identity. It just so happens that this new, insincere way of thinking, aligned with the corporate takeover of both governments and faith-based institutions the world over. These old, pre-Enlightenment power structures, that endured in both the Enlightenment and Modernism, were suddenly suffocated by an extremely cynical view of humanity that was ushered in by the 1% of the time. 
And remember, this was the 1980s, so it was probably your dad. But come on, postmodernism isn't all bad. It gave us The Simpsons, and genre films, and WrestleMania. So, yeah, the complete corporate takeover of society, ensuring we can all be exploited through our eternal individualism, but also the grandest stage of them all, guys. Guys? Yeah? Right, guys? WrestleMania? Happy WrestleMania week, by the way, everyone. To conclude the history lesson, the Age of Enlightenment sought to paint broad strokes and stories in order to better enlighten society, from Shakespearean plays to moral philosophy. Modernism rejected this realism and placed a focus on the expression of these stories from the individual perspective of the artist. And postmodernism took its predecessor a step further by placing a focus on the meaning of the art derived by the individual from the individual. Now, before we begin to map the world of pro wrestling onto this very timeline, to see what we can learn about modernism, postmodernism, and indeed wrestling itself, it's important to clarify the immense similarities between modernism and postmodernism. The latter is simply an evolved thought process of the former, and not a new mode of thinking entirely. The jump from the Age of Enlightenment to Modernism, or from the Dark Ages to the Age of Enlightenment, were much bigger, bolder steps to take than the one that took us from Modernism to Postmodernism. That's crucial. Let's rewind our culture timeline and map pro wrestling onto it. Professional wrestling as a performance art, the catch-as-catch-can and all-in styles that were prevalent at carnivals and music halls, most certainly came about during early modernism. Whereas during the Enlightenment, boxing or legitimate combat contests were the norm, and popular to boot. Or to big boot, if it follows a snake eyes. We now know that modernism rejected realism, and combat sports were the pinnacle of realism. Real violence, real consequences, a real sport. So it makes perfect sense that the origins of pro wrestling as we know it today would arise during early modernism. Just as Van Hoch so still painted landscapes, pro wrestling still simulated the beats of combat. But by removing the realism, expressionistic interpretations of what the sport could be were mapped onto the fight and a performance was born. The catcher's catch can, the theatrical strikes, and the performances of all-in wrestling were quintessentially modernist. Remember Roland Barthes' observations on wrestling from episode 2? The spectacle he viewed was modernist in nature. But now on a stage with men and women in flamboyant outfits, with an intentional sidestep from the realities of boxing. From the early carnival days through to the established territory era in the United States, pro wrestling enjoyed its modernist period. During this time, individual performers would gain notoriety and express their art in front of local audiences as they toured, lived life on the road, and told their stories in the ring. As Barthes alluded to at the end of his essay, 
For a moment, they become gods, but return to being mortals the moment the show ends. From Gotch and Hackenschmidt, Lewis and Burke, to the stars of each NWA territory across the United States, this was wrestling in the modernist era. Certain performers would be the key draw to a show, but it was the show itself, the space in which performers and spectators alike could play with the notion of dismantled realism that ensured wrestling's endured popularity. Promotional posters at the time often consisted of written names of opponents and matchups, not a grand image of the superstar. The simulated combat itself and the ability of a wrestler to successfully simulate said combat was put at center stage of the squared circle. In WWE lore, it can be argued that Bruno Sammartino was the last major modernist wrestler. The last act to not embrace the total disregard for reality as we know it. Most of modern wrestling discourse is everything that comes after this disregard for reality. Everything from 1985 onwards. With the rise of WrestleMania, the birth of the superstar, and the introduction of the first wave of postmodern wrestling by Vince McMahon Jr. Look, look, I say the first wave because there's a clear split that comes in the late 90s into a different mode of postmodern wrestling. Look, I say the first wave because there's a clear split that comes in the late 90s into a different mode of postmodern wrestling. But more on that in a few minutes. Let's talk about the first wave and leather bound bigots. There he is, Hulkamania, the Hulk. As we've established, in the postmodern age, a cynical view of modernist progress set in. The Second World War triggered this line of thinking, but it wasn't cemented until the less than successful attempts at counterculture in the 1960s and 70s. These countercultures failed due to systemic oppression by the powerful elites. Look up the history of the Black Panther movement or the politics of the Vietnam War as examples of power structures bringing the progress of modernism to a grinding halt. It's, uh, it's soul-crushing stuff, it's, it's not happy history, but we can only reshape our future if we dismantle the past. With this new general sense of an idealistic reality of equality being impossible, Opportunists disguised as statesmen, such as Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, stepped up to the plate as postmodern leaders. Leading a population that was confused and unsure of what to do next, their governments pulled society in a direction that would reinforce a deep individualism, a society that corporations would be able to profit from through the exploitation of workers for decades to come.
Vince McMahon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the greatest sports entertainment spectacular of all time. Welcome to WrestleMania. Now, Vince McMahon is seemingly cut from the same cloth as Reagan and his army of opportunists. To McMahon's credit, he saw the opportunity to create a new reality for wrestling. One built in his individual image. He single-handedly dismantled the territory system, a system with problems of its own, but one that was at least built on the idea that we can all work together. McMahon's vision was intensely postmodern. He seemingly concluded that wrestling couldn't enter the same boom that other industries at the time were experiencing unless it all fell under one monopoly, one corporate umbrella. Alongside being a ruthless businessman caught up in the rising tides of his age, it really shouldn't be denied that McMahon is an admirer of the art form who loves the sport of pro wrestling perhaps more than anyone else alive today. Perhaps to a dangerous level of love, one that doesn't respect the perspectives of anyone else in the relationship. His intentions are pure, it's his postmodern execution and strict adherence to business over art that stifles creativity and reinforces a repetitive reality. And if we look at the WWE over the last 40 years, what we see is a personification of McMahon's idea of what pro wrestling should be. His personal preferences and biases are not on trial here, as over the years there's been so much love for the variety he has to offer. We can't deny the memorable moments, the great things that kept the fire of pro wrestling alive during this deeply individual time. Personally, I prefer narrative-driven action cemented by intentional storytelling through the use of body parts. But you might prefer the spectacle of the Cruiserweight styles or Lucha Libre or the hard-hitting realism of Strong Style or the, or the grand narrative of a push for equality in wrestling. All of the above are valid preferences for the sport of kings. McMahon's preferences have changed with the whims of culture over the years, but if we look to that early postmodern period of the 1980s, we can gleam the following as Vince's artistic preferences. A deep focus on individual characters. A love of muscle-bound bronzed men. Year-long story arcs with minimal plot points and the idea that the event and the superstars are larger than life itself. Now, some of these preferences draw from modernist ideals, others from the postmodern, and some even from the enlightened age. What marked this era as the arrival of postmodernism in wrestling was McMahon's declaration of this being all there is. The whole mentality of you like what I tell you to like. It's not his preferences or ideas that are wrong, but the way he executed them. McMahon did for wrestling what Reagan did for politics. He gave up on the idea of a unified utopia and instead accepted the cynicism of humanity and rebuilt reality in his own ideological image. And what about that leather-bound racist Hulk Hogan? 
orange skin, unnaturally so. A man who evoked the unifying image of the American flag, but who attributed new meanings to it. Meanings and myths that hadn't really been associated heavily with the flag until this point. In Reagan's and McMahon's and Hogan's world, it stood for freedom, but it had previously primarily stood for unity. It was a symbol of being a real American, but without any explanation of what it meant to be a real American. Beyond, you know, saying prayers and eating vitamins, not a very... Not a collectivist meaningful existence, just a lot of Alpha and Omega 3. In the postmodern tradition, audiences implanted their own meaning onto the flag and what it represents. And even onto Hogan himself. Hogan didn't need to stand for any meaningful, three-dimensional ideals or even present an accurate representation of combat. He just needed to be symbolically broad enough to represent the greatest number of individuals possible in order to maximize profit, which by the way is the big secret of how to build a superstar. Now look, I don't know if McMahon or the stars of the rock and wrestling era realize or even entertain this idea as most of society and culture underwent similar changes at roughly the same time. To McMahon and Hogan, they were likely just following the trends of a new and confused society. A society where war was cold and always happening, but bombs never dropped. An age of intense anxiety that led to intense power grabs. The arrival of postmodernism. Let's fast forward to the late 1990s now. I'm I'm dancing while I'm reading these lines because disco's back again. Except this time with MDMA, so we don't notice that it's just a repeat of early 70s culture. By this point, postmodern thinking is established and in full swing. But a similar fatigue begins to set in as many people start to realize that by removing reality from society, you also strip the world of meaning. Which, I mean, meaning is entirely subjective and what we make of the world around us. But in a true postmodern society, the sort we've experienced for the last 40 years, there's very little room to create and build your own meaning from scratch due to someone else's idea of meaning being shoved down your throat every 30 seconds. Here's an ad. Feeling lost? Need help navigating depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts? Are you currently walking down a literal hallway of despair, losing a metaphorical grip on the idea of meaning and certainty? then you need a cup of Jasmogi tea. Our tea is priced at just 50 times the cost of production and is hand-picked by slaves in your country's very own supply chain. Unlike consulting a mental health professional, Jasmogi tea is quick, easy, and reinforces the idea that you can drink your problems away. Now a word from our sponsor. Guzzly, the next six rounds are on you. <sighs> yep. 
As the first generation of postmodern wrestling fans came of age, they started to become disillusioned with the branding that was thrown out by Vince McMahon. They no longer accepted the Hulk Hogan's and Ultimate Warriors of the world, and I mean, who does? Why should we accept men who refuse to accept other men themselves, treat people the way they want to be treated, put them in the annals of history? Anyway, fans grew up, as much growing up as you can do under postmodernism. Some fans stayed with WWF and focused on the Bret Harts and Shawn Michaels of the world, the true workers who hearkened back to an older era but with the branding of a modern superstar. Other fans looked to WCW or ECW, places where anti-heroes rose up as the main characters of the story. Anti-heroes as a concept are intensely postmodern. The stable known as the New World Order became the cool, top guy response to the stock, Vince McMahon-inspired babyfaces of the 1980s. Characters like Sandman or Tommy Dreamer in ECW showed that you didn't have to look like a typical wrestler to be entertaining, as long as you could fulfill some kind of desire of the paying individuals, in this case, bloodlust. For the first time in over a decade, Vince McMahon, a postmodern and deeply individualistic ideologist, was forced to consider the perspectives of the individuals who paid to attend his shows, as they were tuning out in great numbers in favour of companies who better reflected their own individualism. Because if there's one thing that can trump Vince's artistic vision, it's money. And it's for this reason that I've decided to split postmodernist wrestling into two clear stages, early and late. The NWO, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and the general Monday Night Wars slash Attitude Era era can be argued as the arrival of late postmodernism in wrestling. If Vince McMahon had continued to push his own individual brand of wrestling onto the world, dominating the conversation in a world stripped of all meaning, then the juggernaut of 1980s marketing would not have survived. In order to breathe new life into the industry, and indeed industries across all of culture, these major companies had no other choice but to listen to the individuals consuming their product. Not all the way, and definitely not all the time, but just enough to keep investors happy and to stave off having to think of a new reality entirely, because that takes effort, and who can be bothered? Vince McMahon's infamous cold open speech on Monday Night Raw ushered in the Attitude Era and can be marked as the beginning of late postmodernist wrestling. This is one of my favourite artefacts, not just in wrestling but in pop culture in general. Because during this speech, McMahon spoke in a way he'd never spoken on television before, and perhaps never since. Now, it could just be it was well-written copy produced by company investors at the time who saw the success of WCW and knew that a change had to be made, but it can also be viewed as yet another pulling back of the curtain that reminded audiences of what wrestling is, entertainment. So much of postmodern marketing is trying to conceal a myth within a basic human want or need. 
as we discussed in the last episode, go listen. And that's what's so brilliant and ultimately strange about the speech McMahon gave. It, it dispels those very myths. McMahon revealed that the Say Your Prayers line was nothing more than a slogan and that it is now passé. In modernist thinking, cultural myths are supposed to be true in the moment they're experienced in, never to be deemed as passé. However, in postmodern thinking, you still make your meaning for the moment you live in, but it doesn't have to be true. The crime of postmodernism is that marketers, businessmen, and other dominant ideologists of this era don't tell the rest of us that one day suddenly things like say your prayers and eat your vitamins mean absolutely nothing. And yet, there Vince was, in 1997, spelling it out. It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV, daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others, cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox, sitcoms like Seinfeld, and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. Through some 50 years, the World Wrestling Federation has been an entertainment mainstay here in North America and all over the world. One of the reasons for that longevity is as the times have changed, so have we. I'm happy to say that this new vibrant creative direction has resulted in a huge increase in television viewership, for which we thank USA Network and TSN for allowing us to have the creative freedom, but most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. Raw and the Warzone are definitely the cure for the common show. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that the Attitude Era was just another piece of branding. Combined with the Ruthless Aggression era, it was a decade defined by excess and outrageousness, which in a lot of ways is just an evolution and marked shift in terms from the same values of early postmodernism. Every time the WWE, or indeed any major media company, declares they'll be taking an exciting new step forward, a real change. All it ever amounts to is a shift in branding, and never a new way of thinking. It's the equivalent of plastering over the cracks in the ceiling without fixing the known structural damage to the roof that is causing everyone to say, hey, isn't the roof gonna fall soon? Which brings us to the death of postmodernism. And in wrestling, we've been witnessing it for the last few years and will continue to do so for the next several, or 10, or 20, it's up to us. Let's compare the speech that Vince gave at the end of 1997, which, 
while being cynical branding, were still undoubtedly a popular and profitable era for the company, let's compare that with the speech given by the McMahons at the end of 2018. So everybody wants to know what's, what's going on with Monday Night Raw. I'm sure you've asked that question. Because Monday Night Raw has been on the air for over 25 years. That's extraordinary. One of the reasons for our success, of course, is we change with the times. When the times need a changing, we do just that. We change with the times. And despite, despite one man's brilliance, despite one man's creativity, one man's vision, can't do it all by myself anymore, that's for sure. I can do it without you guys, though. Yeah. So with that in mind. We're out here tonight because um, we haven't been doing a very good job for you lately. We haven't been doing the one thing that my father has always taught us to do, and that's listen to our audience. We've let middle managers air their petty grievances. We've been suffocating our superstars, and all of that is going to change, and it starts tonight. Because the four of us are personally responsible to ensuring that all of you have the best possible experience that there is. And more importantly, we're gonna give you what you want. Something new, something fresh. And as long as we give you less of what you don't want and more of what you do, WWE will always be then, now, and forever. It's desperate. They're less sure of themselves because their version of wrestling is still just variations on the same passe themes that McMahon had seemingly dismissed 20 years prior. And yes, I know, we've had the rises of the Daniel Bryans and Becky Lynch's of the universe, characters that were never supposed to get quite as popular as they actually did, up for debate. But at least they feel like organic, fan-grown heroes, and that's, that's the best we can do. But ultimately, they still get branded and formed into the same type of WWE character, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. A lot of us like those kinds of characters or branding. I know I do, but it's not real change. After the most recent attempt to usher in a new era by the McMahons, so much has happened. A global pandemic shook up WWE's presentation style for the first time in a decade. The rise of AEW, another major national promotion owned by another billionaire who the jury is still out on. Look, there's no doubt AEW is different to WWE, but when the bell rings at the end of the day, it's still in the vein of a Vince McMahon-inspired production. Just without all that, you know, messy McMahonness. It's no Lucha Underground is, is what I'm saying. Which in itself is still deeply postmodern, but we don't we don't have time. I'll I'll analyze Lucha Underground at some point. Let's do that. That'll be fun. 
It's clear based on the reactions of the 1997 and 2018 speeches that individuals are starting to see through the facade of postmodern productions. Productions where the meaning is captured in the moment but means very little beyond it, and with history only being preserved by those in control of the narrative, we're looking at a very bleak future. In fact, the world over we're witnessing the death of postmodernism in the events we see around us. The election of Donald Trump and also Brexit, both happening in 2016, were brought about by the same kind of opportunists who took the reins at the end of modernist thinking. When no one outside of radical thinking has solutions to society's problems, those who are power hungry always step in and make their grubby, cruel play at reshaping the world. Now five years on from events like that and we still don't really have solutions to the problems affecting our time. The recent mass shootings acted as a soul-crushing symptom and reminder that we're still simply paving over the cracks. And maybe things will be different by 2022 when the global pandemic is over and people can better organise and implement change. Or perhaps it won't, and we'll keep dreaming the same dream we've all been dreaming since the 1980s. Which is a dream that says, there is no unifying dream, so here's a distraction that sort of feels like one, as together we retreat into our repeated past until our own history loses all sense of meaning. Which is why the jury is still out on Tony Khan and AEW. It's, it's too early to tell if that company is a new version of postmodernism in the same vein as WCW, or if they're part of a new mode of thinking, a new model of storytelling as vastly different as catch as catch can wrestling is to Monday Night Raw. But thankfully, what we can observe is that there are a handful of artists in AEW who do offer something different. Something new yet familiar that manages to take a bold, albeit lazy, step forward without ignoring the steps we used to make in the sand before the beach got bulldozed away. Nope, 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 no more of that. Just look, if if any more than that amount of, of that song is, is played, this whole episode will be pulled from every platform. And it, it took quite a long time to write, actually. So to be honest, that one clip might be just a, a little too much. So I might decide to leave it out of the, the final edit entirely. Um, if, if the me from the future decides not to include it and I just went completely insane out of nowhere... What I just tried to play was Where Is My Mind by Pixies, the brand new theme music of a whatever wrestler named Orange Cassidy. And his opponent, being accompanied to the ring by best friends from wherever, weighing whatever, freshly squeezed Orange Cassidy. Orange Cassidy is certainly one of the more standout stars of AEW, purely 
anecdotally speaking, he's one of the only wrestlers that my friends who don't watch wrestling actually enjoy. His match versus The Bastard, Pack at Revolution 2020, is one of the highlights of wrestling this century, and certainly a match you would include on a variety compilation to show the best of all aspects of wrestling. What Orange Cassidy does, by his own admission, is comedy wrestling. He's described his character as a wrestler who doesn't actually want to wrestle. From strikes with minimal effort to his slow, sloth-like walk around the ring. He takes audiences' preconceived notions about what wrestling should be and invites them to come along with him as he breaks the rules. One of the key things about his character, though, is that he doesn't break all of the rules. He still has his flurries, his comebacks, the passion of a man who actually cares about what he's doing. The personality he displays before this passion kicks in is sound enough to not invalidate the moment of truth in his art. Except, it's not true. It's just a comeback in a worked fight for the entertainment of millions. But it feels true, and that's crucial here. In his feuds with Chris Jericho and Miro in the last year, it has been revealed that Orange Cassidy does in fact care about a lot of things. Despite his 90s slacker vibes, we know he cares about winning matches from the effort he displays in short bursts. We know he cares about his friends, due to the utilization of those passionate bursts to defend Chuck, or Trent, or now, Chris Statlander. Even in kayfabe, his personality is infectious. But crucially, we believe in his comeback more than the comeback of, say, a standard babyface in contemporary wrestling, because the essence of his act invites us to deconstruct wrestling while simultaneously believing in it harder than ever before. We know his weak kicks to the shins don't actually hurt his opponent, but we chant along as though they're akin to strikes from Shibata. Not because we actually think they are, but because we all collectively agree they aren't. So it's funny to pretend they are. It's one extra layer of unreality on top of a performance that's already the very definition of unreal. Remember, Wrestling isn't fake, it's just unreal. But by doing this, a truth is revealed that's truer than anything we've seen since the birth of the superstar. It's highly cynical, yet totally sincere, a performance we can believe in, but one where the artist must be met halfway. And now it's time for the word you've all been waiting for. Enter metamodernism and metamodernist thinking. Something new yet familiar that's not quite entirely tangible yet, but is more tangible than postmodernism can ever hope to be. Now, meta as a prefix is something you may have heard quite a lot of in the last 10 years. Filmmaking beyond film, a meta film. It was around the advent of the last decade that artists and modern thinkers began to develop the idea of metamodernism. Born out of the same feelings of fatigue found at the end of the Enlightenment, the end of modernism, and now the end of postmodernism, they described it as an oscillation between the modernist notion of commitment and the postmodern notion of detachment. 
they asked us to imagine it like a pendulum moving between two states, but so fast that it looks like the pendulum is always in the middle. Metamodernism is a big idea, as it tries to take on the sincerity of modernism as well as the self-awareness of postmodernism. Because that's the dream, right? If we can use belief in grand ideas to better society, but use self-awareness to understand that they'll actually take effort to implement. That's the best of both worlds, and with metamodernist thinking, it's possible, maybe. Who knows? That's, that's the excitement. But because I can feel the creeping existential dread, let's ignore the real world, whatever that is, thanks postmodernism, and focus on fiction. Sitcoms are a great way to illustrate the shift from postmodernist to metamodernist ideas in culture, and so I'm going to use them to do just that right now. Sitcoms like Seinfeld, South Park, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia are quintessentially postmodern. They're cynical, self-reflective, and the characters don't have helpings of heart to them, and if they do, they never really change. But they make us laugh because any of us who have ever experienced postmodernism, which is all of us, can relate to that too-cool-for-school mentality of the futility of personal growth. Then take sitcoms like Community or The Good Place. The characters in these shows display cynicism and, in the case of Arbed from Community, an actual awareness that he's a character in a sitcom. The ultimate cynicism. And yet, the characters in these shows all search and strive for something beyond their own individualism. We watch them grow, form relationships, become new people while remaining grounded to their core self. They're still ladled with irony and reference points that let you know you're watching a sitcom, but the sincerity is there. And then it can be argued that shows like The Office, 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation are the midpoint between these two groups. Because remember, it's not just a binary switch, it's a spectrum of meaning. Some cultural products can be more post or meta-modern than others, and if you think about when the eight shows I mentioned were made, there's also an overlap in timelines, which is also important to remember. There are quintessentially postmodern products being produced today, supposedly one decade on from the birth of metamodernist thinking. Hell, purely modernist media is still prevalent in most parts of the world. Enlightenment thinking is still valid in a lot of areas, and pre-enlightenment buildings and institutions still stand tall over us in early April of 2021. Happy WrestleMania week yet again! The point is, cultural eras and the products of those eras overlap, and it's only with analysis and hindsight that we can roughly agree where they begin and end. All exist simultaneously. That's, that's pretty important to accept when it comes to metamodernism. The rest of the proposed metamodern manifesto continues along the idea of oscillating between diametrically opposed ways of thinking ultimately concluding that concepts like art and truth, the knowledges that push us forward, are found by moving between the two states. As the early metamodernists stated themselves, and I quote, 
We propose a pragmatic romanticism unhindered by ideological anchorage. Thus, metamodernism shall be defined as the mercurial condition between and beyond irony and sincerity, naivety and knowingness, relativism and truth, optimism and doubt, and pursuit of a plurality of disparate and elusive horizons. We must go forth and oscillate. I myself am oscillating between this microphone and cup of coffee right now. I've edited out the drinking sounds, but I apologize for any residual wet mouth. <clears throat> now, I don't know to what extent this way of thinking can help change the world at large. I know that considering multiple perspectives does increase empathy, even if people's ideologies remain fixed. I also know that the people who have strived wholeheartedly towards any of the above concepts have seldom found meaning or progress. I can agree that to be truly knowing, you do need to be a little naive. To be truly optimistic, you must first look for the areas of doubt in your situation and amend them appropriately. Those, those things make sense. It seems more likely that metamodern thinking as an approach can save art and culture from the jaws of business and opportunism. With a grounded and present mind, we can imagine a new way. With the benefit of hindsight, we can take the best of the cultural eras that came before us and attempt to devalue the aspects of them that held us back, perhaps intentionally so. So perhaps the way to preserve the art and take it forward is to look to the roots of modernism and find out what was working, and then apply some of the lessons learned from postmodernism in order to create something new, something that brings back concepts like reality with enough of a self-awareness to know that it isn't fully real, but a modernist contract between performer and audience to accept it as real in the moment. And with that, let's return to wrestling and Orange Cassidy. Hopefully by now you've married my analysis of OC's performance with the tenets of metamodernism, and if you haven't, I'm gonna leave a 5 second pause for you to do so right now. You can, uh, you can pause, you can, you can rewind, I, d I don't know why I've left this space. You can just, you can pause it and think. This, this was pointless. Through a quick analysis of his performance and a brief discussion of metamodernism, we can conclude that Orange Cassidy is indeed a metamodern wrestler. And he's not the only one. You can make cases for MJF, Jurassic Express, Shotzi Blackheart, Bray Wyatt, Sami Zayn, and at least a handful of other performers in the wrestling mainstream, and quite a few on the fringes. I don't quite fully understand what a Danhausen is, but I'm almost certain it's metamodern. But other than a marrying of irony and sincerity, what else makes this new kind of performance possible? Let's look at a glaring observation. Compared to your average WWE or AEW top star, I personally know very little about the performer behind the character of Orange Cassidy. In fact, it's only because of Wikipedia that I even know his real name. Unlike many other characters in wrestling, where you can easily recall their real self or at least their digital persona, 
Turn on Peacock right now and you can listen to Randy Orton recalling kayfabe events entirely out of character. I personally doubt we'll see that from Orange Cassidy for quite some time. If ever. Whatever. And maybe that's for the best, that's how it was in the modernist era of wrestling. It was only in late postmodernism that we began to dismantle the psyche of those playing gods. And opportunists perhaps played into that by branding shoot interviews and behind the scenes gossip as vital content in the wrestling community. Perhaps in order to extend the lifespan of this particular movement and, you know, fill their own pockets. And when it comes to this observation, I've just thought of a better example and I think you know it too. MJF is someone who holds a strong, three-dimensional character in wrestling. One that's clearly, hopefully, quite different to the man playing the role. But truly, we know very little about that man. MJF perhaps feels more real than many of his contemporaries and many wrestling characters of the last 40 years because he guards the actual reality of Maxwell Friedman and places a focus on the character of MJF. In doing so, he technically creates something that's just as unreal as, say, Hulk Hogan, but that feels more grounded and like a real person. The more real-seeming a wrestler is, the more they can play around with the unreal. Real and unreal coexisting? That sounds like metamodernism to me. That's not to say, in order to become a metamodern wrestler, you have to be as guarded as MJF or OC, which I've just realized OC, when initialized, can also stand for original content, which is, that's, when we're talking metamodern, that's just, that's too good. But you at least need an awareness of yourself as a character, the reality around you, and how your character relates to said reality. We know that modernism was concerned with the artist and the character. Early postmodernism was concerned with making a new reality around us, and late postmodernism the audience's relation to said new reality. So therefore, metamodernism is the pendulum oscillating between all three. And when it works, you get an MJF. And that all makes it sound like a tougher performance for the, for the wrestler. But in a lot of ways, it's a classic, keep it simple, stupid approach. A metamodern wrestler doesn't need to think about the pressures of maintaining a third, sort of midpoint persona on social media or in public. Instead, they either avoid the former entirely or treat social media and public appearances as another platform to get their character across. It's that old school mentality of the 60s and 70s wrestlers, but a self-awareness that they're actually doing it. In fact, we might be able to make the conclusion that any wrestler who pulls back the curtain on their social media is wriggling around in postmodernism. And those who mostly remain in character online are engaging with meta-modern thinking, seeing it as yet another opportunity for more performance art. And the best part about this observation is that it's not generational. You have veterans tweeting mostly in character, like Matt Hardy or Sami Zayn. 
Whereas Alexa Bliss or Cody are trying to create some middle ground character online, which for better or worse, exposes the unreal aspects of their performances. I don't know, it's wonderful to see artists young and old engaging with their metamodern brain. It's, it's just nice to see because it, it goes against this divide and conquer attitude of splitting us up into generations. We could even say that MJF's average workday will be a lot less taxing than, say, Charlotte Flair's, for example, and, and not just because of the WWE media schedule. The latter must maintain a profile in line with her corporate and social media sponsors. She must be ready to make breakfast TV appearances, not as the ruthless queen who is willing to step on anyone to maintain her idea of legacy, but as Charlotte Flair, pro wrestling superstar. But crucially not Ashley Flair, the side that her partner or her family sees in real life. Not the artist, not the real person, but a midpoint between the two. And not oscillating either fixed at the exact midpoint between the two binaries. And through this analysis, the meaninglessness of postmodernism rears its ugly idea of what a head is. Because what's the point? Why should we care about a performative middle ground persona, one that's not quite a fully formed character purely for entertainment, but also not the revealing of truths from a mysterious artist? It's a glossy, media-ready middle ground, and it's noticeable, and it's fake, which is the opposite of what wrestling should be. A lot of WWE superstars and some AEW performers are in this dangerous, fake-sounding middle ground as performers, and I posit that it's one of the reasons it's so difficult to get new audiences into wrestling, especially younger viewers. As audiences, to see our favourite art form evolve, we may have to give up our lust for gossip columns for business decisions and behind-the-scenes scoops and rumours. Uh, I know, those things are juicy, and they've become a staple of postmodernist wrestling discourse, but they appear to be holding us back by engaging with the made-up world of business, a world dictated by the McMahons, the Khans, and shareholders, and the fake, glossy versions of the artists at play, and also Personally speaking, as it's been the dominant form of discourse the entire time I've been a wrestling fan, I'm kinda tired of it. Look, when I lay down at the end of the day and drift off to sleep thinking about pro wrestling, because we all do it, right? I'm more fulfilled by analysing the stories told in the ring, good or bad, than I am the stories told once the lights go out. It's not that they aren't interesting, but they've become so middle ground and meaningless that they feel like a less real version of the performance itself. Okay, yeah, I'll expand on that, thanks for asking. When shoot interviews were two hours of unedited tape from a genuinely disgruntled employee, I could see the appeal in peeking behind the curtain. But when their podcasts edited down and cut with sponsorship slogans, or revealing interviews branded as such and produced for Peacock, or even 
YouTube web series that show you characters out of character, except that's a lie because they still very much are playing their characters, just with less conviction and that's good. Why? At what point do these all just become diluted versions of the genre we know and love? As an audience, we don't have to be a part of the magic, we just have to believe it. It doesn't make us marks because we're aware of the contract at play, and it definitely doesn't make us smarks because we're not acting cooler than the show itself. If you think about it, it actually makes us meta marks. And if that takes off, you heard it here first. If it, if it doesn't, just let's ignore it and move on. The proverbial curtain of the business has slowly been pulled back since the inception of pro wrestling in the late 19th century. It wasn't some new concept invented in the Attitude Era, each and every generation has done a little more than the last. So are we not just a little curious what could happen if we agree collectively to close it again? I mean, just a little. Orange Cassidy and MJF are proof it can be done without robbing the audience of anything. And they're two of the more compelling characters to potential new fans, so they must be doing something, right? If the essence of pro wrestling is to create real feelings within a facade, then it seems as though metamodernism can do more to serve wrestling than postmodernism ever did. By oscillating between the two diametrically opposed realities of real and fake, Postmodern wrestling created countless memorable moments for an increased mass culture, ones that we'll be able to replay for decades to come. But also, it deprived us of central truths that can be life-affirming or consciousness-expanding, especially when experienced together, when we can all once again be in large rooms, shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, collectively agreeing to hand ourselves over to the unreal, in quite frankly an absurd contract, in order to experience emotions that are more real, more human than what postmodernism has branded as everyday life. Because if you're always asking, where is my mind, it's possible to oscillate between two modes of thinking if you look inward on your individual effect on the collective outward. To the point where you can attempt to be outwardly profound over the top of an introspective melancholic musical bed. Because yes, postmodernism has tilled all sense of meaning from the topsoil, but my god has that made the culture ready for some new greenery. Irony and cynicism won't fix the existential problems of our time. We've tried it for four decades and frankly, it's not working. Sincerity and a healthy skepticism is the way forward, so pour yourself a glass of something freshly squeezed by your own hands and set about putting the work in for a better future. Make sure everything you say has meaning. It'll be tough, but this time around we know exactly how tough it's going to be. And as wrestling fans, we can see it happening in our own world, which is inspiring in of itself. Pro wrestling is a contract between artist and audience to believe in the stories of old, to believe in something bigger than any of us, whilst maintaining an awareness that it's all a performance. That's that's what wrestling always has been, and that, that sounds pretty meta-modern, guys. 
you know, maybe all the analysis that I just gave about potential wrestling cultural eras is just the hot air my anxiety tells me it is. Maybe, I, I, I stand by some of it. Perhaps pro wrestling has already had its peak, but maybe, just, just maybe, wrestling never truly made it to the mainstream as an art form, and always felt like the red-headed stepchild of entertainment because it was born in the wrong time. And maybe wrestling's time, its version of a self-aware reality, the same kind of reality we're starting to see sprout in all aspects of culture? I don't know guys, maybe, maybe wrestling's time is now. Wrestling over time might not ever look the same, or be forever entrenched in our individual interpretations of nostalgia, but we'll know it's good whenever it feels the same as it ever has. Real. Thanks for listening to these musings on metamodernism and the cultural eras that came before it, and for the analysis of the current landscape of wrestling and the landscapes that came before it. Going to keep this outro pretty brief because once again I ran over the hour mark even though I said I'd keep everything to a tight hour. Oh well. I make this podcast for the fun of it just a search for meaning and if a different kind of wrestling discourse is possible. Yeah, so I make this podcast for fun, so don't give me anything. But if you do feel like giving something back, then a nice meaningless review or rating on one of the meaningless platforms that are available would be very helpful, just purely for meaningless algorithmic purposes. Just quickly, I don't know if either would appreciate a shout out on this rambling podcast of a madman, but two independent podcasts I enjoy that are both doing something a little different with wrestling discourse are Making Kayfabe, a podcast that narratively rebooks wrestling storylines, particularly ones that had been mishandled in the past, and Pro Wrestling History Nerds. They have a handful of episodes already, specifically the ones on carnival wrestling, the birth of Lucha Libre, and Mildred Burke are all just fantastic. 90% of the information I had no clue about, and it it seems vital for any wrestling fan. Remember the part about being grounded in the present, understanding history to build a new future? I, f I feel like listening to pro wrestling history nerds can can help you do that. I'll be back in three or four weeks with maybe a shorter essay. In the meantime, if you want to discuss the idea of a metamark or what it means to be a fan of wrestling in an emerging metamodern period, please reach out. I'd love if we could start a, a clubhouse, a, a discord, a, some kind of space where we can discuss these ideas. That'd be pretty cool. But if no one is interested in that, then I'm going to keep making this podcast anyway, and we can all get on with our lives. That's, that's wonderful. Until next time, be kind to each other, 
search for the meaning in the things you say and do, and yeah, let's kill postmodernism together. Guzzly drinks on your house. Drinks on demand. Drinks delivered to your domicile. Your dependency delivery service. Booze up from the comfort of home. Grain alcohol for your gullet. It's Guzzly. <laughs> I- <laughs>